Welcome to an episode of the Zach Hiley Show. Today, I have the honor with being with Dr. Costas Lalas, who's an attending here in urology. So Dr. Lalas went to Duke University for undergrad, where he studied classical studies and Latin. For medical school, he went to Sydney Kimmel Medical College here at Thomas Jefferson University. For residency, he went to Duke University Medical Center. And for his fellowship, he went to Mayo Clinic, Arizona, where he studied minimally invasive surgery and urologic oncology. He's the vice chair of education here at Jefferson. He's the director of robotic surgery here at Jefferson. And he is also the director of surgical simulation here at Jefferson. He's the program director for the urology residency at Einstein Medical Center, which is also in Philadelphia. And it's part of the Jefferson Enterprise. Welcome, Dr. Lalas, to this show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. So as we start off all these episodes, I'm going to read off a few statistics around urology, and then we'll see if any jump out to you, if you have any opinions on them. So for entering residents, the step one score average of a U.S. entering MD overall for any residency in America is 232. For urology, that is 249. For step two score average is 245 overall for all entering residents of U.S. from USMD schools, compared to urology, which is 249. The training is about five years usually. The 2021 match percentage was 80% in urology, compared to 92.8% overall for all USMD students. International students matched at a 24% rate into urology, compared to an overall international match rate to any residency of 59%. Salary-wise, Attending the average salary of a physician in any specialty in America is 339000 The average academic medicine associate or full professor, sorry, not average, median salary is 471000 In regards to hours, the average physician works 51 hours a week, while the average urologist works 58 hours a week. Finally, for burnout, the 2020 burnout report says general burnout percentage among physicians was 48%. And urologists was 49%. And the main complaint of urologists was there were too many bureaucratic tasks. Anything there that stands out to you? Anything of interest? Well, let's start with the match. Sure. Um, so it's a competitive match. Uh, it's an early match. Most The match day typically is in March. For urology, the match day is in January. I believe there's one other subspecialty which has an early match, um, I believe. And I think that really comes out with the board scores that you mentioned. So the it's it's interesting though the step one board scores they actually have converted over to a pass fail system. So whereas we would use those board scores when we would screen students for residency, we can't use the step ones anymore. Some of us have gone to step twos, and some of us are actually using other methods by which to screen our applicants. The reason why I say that now is because we're right in the middle of application season. So I don't know when this is going to show, but we're in the third week of October and applications or actually invites for interviews are going to be at the end of this week. Um, So the average resident or the average student applies to somewhere between 60 and 80 programs. There's just about 140 programs. So... Uh, for a residency of three, it's not unusual to get over 400 applications, right? So you can imagine how competitive it is. Now, you mentioned first-time U.S. graduates. Those are historically the most attractive applicants. 
the first time U.S. graduates from MD medical schools. However, that's in addition to those applicants, we have reapplicants who are MDs. We have first-time applicants from DO from osteopathic medical schools. We have reapplicants from osteopathic medical schools, and we have graduates of international medical schools. And I can tell you now because I've just gone through this process, they are all very competitive, right? So it is a very difficult process. But just like any other residency or any other application process, you get invited for an interview, you come to the interview, you interview with a lot of the staff from that uh, particular department, and then you submit your rank list, we submit our rank list, and match day occurs. So that's those are the kind of the numbers for urology residency um, and, and, and the match. Um, you mentioned salary. Uh, Salaries are all over the place, right? And as you know, um, uh, I think you said the average salary for a physician is somewhere around three thirty, and the average salary for a urologist is four seventy one. Yeah, somewhere on four. Associate full professor median salary. Right, yeah. and that's you know inherent in that statement. An associate or slash full professor is that it's an academic program, right? So uh, it historically private practice urologists can actually make a lot more than that, um, but and it's whether you go by the AAMC or, I mean, there's all these different methods by which to judge average salary. Um, however, uh, it the fact that we're better than average when you compare us to all physicians, that's one of the reasons why it's such a competitive specialty. Um, we're a surgical subspecialty. One of the um, things that students always seem to mention when they are interviewing with us is they like the mix between surgery and medicine. As a urologist, which is a surgical subspecialty, I, I love to operate because that's what I do. And you mentioned it, I do robotic surgery. That's a large part of my practice. However, I don't ever have to step foot in an operating room in order to make a living. And there are urologists out there who are very efficient and never do a major surgery, right? And they'll just send all that stuff out to either academic centers or to practices which can actually manage that type of thing. Um, so that's another really attractive part of urology is that it's a surgical subspecialty where you do not have to operate or at least do big cases. You can just do procedures. Um, you mentioned burnout. So <clears throat> we all thought we were really happy, right? <laughs> And there was a paper that came out, gosh, I guess it was almost 10 years ago, that looked at burnout across all specialties, and urologists were number one. And that just blew us all out of the water, because that can't be the case, because urologists are so happy. And one thing you'll notice about, and you probably have picked up on this, when you go across the country and you meet members of the same specialty, it's like you're meeting the same person over and over again because our personalities are very consistent. So we all thought that urologists were really happy and apparently it's we're hiding this deep, dark secret that we're not all happy. And I think it's really brought a lot of um, recognition of a problem that persists throughout the entire medical community, which is we work really hard um, we sacrifice a lot to get where we are, and sometimes we wonder if it's actually all worth it. And that's what 
you know, when it comes down to it, that's more or less what burnout is. And yeah, it's a problem. And, um, you know, some, I can't tell you how many times I've looked at my partners and say, we don't really get paid enough for what we do. Right. And you can hear what we get paid. And so, but you know, we have to make very different, difficult decisions. And sometimes we sacrifice parts of our lives for other things like work. And that's where the burnout comes from. So it never used to be part of our meetings, but the recognition or the um, the importance of things like wellness and soundness that has all come about. I just came from I just came back from a meeting where we had a yoga session every morning. Like, are you kidding me? Every morning, every morning, a yoga session. It was a half an hour. We were all terrible at it, but we had a yoga instructor who happens to be a urologist. And she said, look, we're going to go through this and it's going to put you guys in the right setup and the right mindset for the rest of the day. And I got to say, I've never done yoga and I actually prescribe yoga to some of my patients and now I see why. I mean, that is a mind clearing, great way to start your morning. Are you practicing it outside of the hospital at all now? No, I mean, well, I just got done with it like three days ago, literally. But I I, I, honestly, I would consider it because... It, it just, it's not just about balance and, you know, it's not just about stretching. It's about the whole person and just putting yourself in the right mindset. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot to that. Um, so, and now I, now I understand why I prescribe it to my patients, right? So I, I think, I think more people should prescribe yoga and maybe some walks and maybe meditation or all that. That'd be great. Absolutely. I mean, you have to have time for it. Yeah. yeah. But I think that the point that, the person who is the instructor for this course was that you need to make time for it. Yeah. Because if you don't make time for it, then obviously you're going to be the one who burns out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of the strong, quiet surgeon who can manage everything and works 120 hours a week, I mean, that is that that is a myth anymore, right? And, you know, these people coming into the practice, because I've been at Jefferson now for 18 years, oh. I see these students and young residents who come in, that's not enough for them anymore. They are very focused on work-life balance. And honestly, they probably have something that we didn't have. When I was a resident, we spent 120 hours in the hospital. I did my residency at Duke University in the Department of Surgery. And Duke University at the time was a thought to be a very malignant experience as residency. They boasted 120% divorce rate. Now, whether or not that that was true or not, who knows? What that means is that everyone would get divorced and then some people would get remarried and then some of those people would get divorced. So one-fifth of the people who remarried got divorced. Right, yeah. So, um, and sure enough, my first marriage ended in divorce. I never got out of residency. Um, So, and when you think back to how spending and I I loved residency. I worked I worked incredibly hard. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the camaraderie. I enjoyed the people I worked with. I enjoyed my attendings. I enjoyed the surgeries. I liked Durham, um, but my relationships suffered. There's no question, right? So, and my my spouse at the time was not in medicine, and she did not understand the amount of hours that I spent in the hospital, and why I was making that choice. So, and that means a lot, 
right? And I, I and then the eighty-hour work week came around right at the end of my residency, and we were bitter. You know, like those of us who had just gone through it just didn't really understand why they're, and you know, you, you were going to get worse trained surgeons and they weren't going to be able to be in the hospital for as long. And, you know, we used to say that if you were on call every other night, well, then you were missing out on a learning experience on that night that you were at home. Like that was the mindset. And it just doesn't need to be that way. So I think that the focus on wellness, the focus on on work-life balance is a good one, right? And I think that that's something that's never going to go away. And it, we're evolving, finally. Was there a shift? Was there, was, did it shift at the time when they said, <laughs> we have the 80-hour work week now? Or was it a slow shift? Was there a slice? I, I still remember, and I'll use my residency as, an, as the example. You know, again, Duke Surgery, which was, it was considered, um, you know, one of the elite programs. I told you what it was like. Mm -hmm. I still remember my chief year or which is, it was a six year program. So it was either when I was a six or a five and one of the old surgeons who led M&M, M&M is the morbidity and mortality conference. This guy was as mean as he was smart, right? And he would bring you up in front of the entire department of surgery and you would present a case where there was a complication and he would tear you apart and that was accepted and that's just how it worked so you were up the entire night before just reading waiting by tear then, you apart he mean he, he, like he insult just, you he would just tear you down really? he would just keep asking question after question after question until you didn't know the answer and that's just how it was and like Occasionally, someone got up there and could answer every question, and that person was a god, right? But <laughs> but for every god, there were plenty of us who weren't. So anyway, he gave a talk that said, that was entitled, Duke Surgery, Rapidly Progressing, But in Which Direction? Because he was so upset with the changes. When I, so I think that my entering surgical class at Duke all the surgical subspecialties were part of the Department of Surgery. So neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, urology, vascular surgery, everything was part of the, the surgical department. So all the interns were throw in, thrown into one pool. I want to say it was like 25 of us. There were four or five women. By, by the end of the second year of residency, all of those women had left but one. Only one woman from my entering intern class, finished the program. Or wow. her, she was an ENT actually, so otolaryngology, which is also considered one of the more benign surgical subspecialties. Why did they leave? They were the reasons why I told you. One of them never made it past the second week. And this was a smart woman. She was Harvard Medical School. She was really impressive. She wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon which is considered the pinnacle, at the time was the pinnacle of, of surgery. She never made it past the second month because of the way that she was treated. She went into anesthesia. Did a lot of the male residents drop out as well? Some did. Some did. Most of us didn't. Yeah. But that's how medicine has changed. So burnout, it's always been there. We just never had a word for it yeah. or it was never really recognized. So, but that's where the burnout came from. 
And we knew at that time, I still remember things were changing and they, things change slowly. I mean, th- in medicine, most things change very slowly. We knew that there was a problem because people were different. And, you know, what they would tolerate, they didn't tolerate anymore. That number of 120% divorce rate is going gonna, is gonna to stick in my head. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we say it it's probably jokingly. Yeah. But that was the thought. Yeah. A lot of marriages ended in divorce. Wow. Um, just because that... You weren't supposed to focus on that. So we'll get more into your training, but mm-hmm. let's back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. What is urology? So urology is a surgical subspecialty dealing with the genitourinary system, which, which I say is two beans, three tubes, and a bag, right? Two beans, three tubes, and a bag. And a walnut, right? And a walnut, Yeah, okay. so the two beans are your kidneys. The three tubes are your two ureters and your urethra, which is the tube that you pee out of. The bag is the bladder, and the walnut is the prostate. Got it. Right. So, but that's the, that's the genitive urinary system. So I deal with all of those organs and problems that happen with those organs. And the kidneys make urine, and then the collecting system, which are the inside of the kidneys and the ureters and the bladder and the urethra, excrete the urine. Right. So, and in men, the urinary system and the reproductive system coincide because the male urethra is both. And in women, they're separate because you have a vagina and an anterior to the vagina, which is on the upside of it, you have the urethra. So that's what that's what we deal with. And it's all most of the organs are in the pelvis, but the kidneys are high up. They're in the back, so like they're closer to your back than your front, but they're midway up your your abdomen. This might be a silly question, but if there's a something surgical wise that needs to be done on the kidneys. There's no such thing as nephrology specialized ki- like kidney surgeons, right? That's what we are. That's what you are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nephrologists are that. nephrologists are are medical doctors. Got it. They deal a lot with renal failure, uh-huh. renal transplants. Yep. They're smart. These are very smart doctors, um, but they don't do a lot of procedures. I see. We do we do the surgeries. So why did you pick urology? Oh, I love the people. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, we're all the same. We're kind of goofy. Usually we're pretty sharp, um, but uh, we have very similar senses of humor. People are so focused on um, what's what's the show, uh, the the medical show that my kids watch. Grey's Anatomy. Yes, Grey's, Grey's Anatomy. Anatomy. Mm-hmm. God, they love Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> and I just watch it. I'm like, it is not like that. <laughs> so. Um, it, it depends on your operating room. Some some surgeons will play classical music, and they you could hear a pen drop. And then most of us were telling jokes or you Dua know Lipa, these kind of things. Right, we have music playing in the background. You know, we're we're laughing with each other. So I mean, we focus when we need to focus. So, uh, so it's not unsafe, but you know, you're at work. Mm-hmm. So and these are the relationships that you build upon. Because we're, I think I was told early into my clinical experience. I'm a fourth year now. I just submitted my applications a couple of weeks ago. I'm going into internal medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember I was told uh, early into my third year, find your people. Do you think that's a good way? Oh to- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So and I tell I, I part of what I do is I spend a lot of time with students. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very involved with the curriculum uh, at Jefferson or at SKMC. Um, so I sit down with a lot of students who are interested in urology or 
and they say, how do I know? And I tell them just that you'll know because everyone will be, will be just like you. Mm. Don't try to put yourself, you know, a square peg into a round hole. Mm -hmm. right? So you need to be comfortable around the people that you're working with because you're going to be with them very often more than you're with your own family. So uh, I do give that advice to my students as well. Find your own people, um, you know, look for people who make you laugh because this is what, you know, these are the people that you're going to be spending time with. And it's, it's true, like amongst our residents, and, and residency is when you figure this out, right? Okay. Because you're in residency and you're with these guys and ladies for a long amount of time and you walk out of there friends and these are relationships that you've built that you've built up i still talk to friends of mine from residency 18 years 120 I, hours I, I still talk to them right because they know me better than anyone yeah um so yes it's, it's very important that you like the people that you work with and i think that that exists across industry it doesn't mm -hmm. have it's not just medicine did you know in medical school you were going into urology? Was oh, it, yeah. You did? Oh, yeah. How early? So I was lucky enough. Jefferson uh, has urology as a uh, as an elective, okay. which you can choose to do your third year. I see. So, And I wanted to. I don't know why I wanted to, but I wanted to. And I was lucky enough to get it in August. You know, the, at that time, the, the third year of medical school started in July, so it was my second rotation. Mm -hmm. My first rotation was psychiatry which I did not like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, I mean, you do however many rotations, you're yeah. not going to like all of them, mm -hmm. right? So, so I did urology and I loved it, right? I loved the people, I loved the surgeries, I loved the guys, I loved the hours. I loved the confidence that they had. I loved how nice they were to me. I loved that they paid attention to me. I loved that they regarded what I did. And I asked the chief resident at the time, I'll never forget this because... He became my partner, right? I'll get into that in a little bit, mm -hmm. inbreeding in programs, yeah. right? So, <laughs> but uh, he goes, I go, you know, Dr. Das, I'm not sure what I want to do the rest of my life. And I go, I really like urology. And he goes, Costas, you just have to decide what body fluid you want to work with the rest of your life. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess. Right? That's weird. So, and he's like, he's like, urine's sterile, blood is sterile. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, not a bad specialty, huh? And I'm like, okay, right? I don't like snot. Don't really like stool that much, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so not only find your people, find your body fluid. Find your body fluid, right? That makes sense. So medical school, August, urology, gung-ho. 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 Nose, nose. Right. So every rotation that I did after that, I compared it to that, rotation. And I was like, I don't want to do anything else. So I sat down with my chairman, who was at the time a mid-level um, mid urologist. I said, I want to do research. I did research. I did my away rotations and I applied and that was that. So um, I focused very hard on, I knew it was a tough match. Even back then it was a tough match. Um, and when I say tough, you mentioned 85%? 80% from 2020. Yeah. Right. For USMD first. Yeah. For first-time for first, first time US applicants. Yeah. Right. Um, that number's been as low as 65. Wow. Right. It's been as high as 90. Mm. Um, but 65, I mean, so first-time US graduates, 65% match rate, 
So 35% of them, so a little bit over a third, you telling them you didn't match, it's hard, right? So it, it can be very competitive. But I can't remember what it was my year, but I knew I had to work for it. So I did an away rotation. I did one away rotation. Now a lot of the students do more than one. My away rotation just happened to be at Duke. The reason why I went to Duke for my away rotation was because my cousin lived in Durham. And I was able to use her couch. Got it. Right? That's seriously. Like, that's what I did. And um, I went there. I never went out. I, you know, didn't drink a drop. I went to the hospital at four in the morning. I worked all day. And I came home late at night. And they loved that. Right? So I ended up matching there. So, and I tell the students when they're looking at away rotations, you're not there to party. You're not there to make friends. You're there to impress them, and this is your way of impressing them because they're going to take two or three residents a year, right? They're going to get 400 applications, so you have to set yourself apart. So for any student who's listening to this, yeah. you do an away rotation. You go there, and you take it seriously, and they will recognize that. I want to jump ahead in the questions because we're getting into something that I'm sure a lot of people are interested in. How do you maximize your competitiveness as a medical student applying in urology? Away rotations? So uh, we require away rotations. Okay. So I would say most students anymore do at least two, if not more. They're going to be much more likely to put somebody higher on their rank list who spent a month with them, who took the rotation seriously, than somebody who they're just picking up an application. So that rotation is like an interview for you. And if you go there and you are an idiot, then I wouldn't even rank that program. Mm. But if you go there and you take it seriously, that's important. Mm. So, yes, absolutely. Wave rotation number one. Like I said, the USMLEs have changed. Um, it used We used to use step one of the USMLE as a gateway to and a, and a means by which we, um, we would evaluate students. We can't do that anymore because it's pass-fail. So some of us are using step two in that regard. Some of us have just gotten rid of it altogether. I do tell the students, and I never, because one of the questions I would get is, well, when should I take my step twos? And if they crush their step ones, I would say don't. Mm. Just, just go through the interview process, take it later on, pass it, and, and then you put it behind you. But if they tank their step ones, I would say take your step twos. Now I tell them all to take their step twos so that that number is on their application when they submit it. Because I know that some departments or some programs are actually using step twos also as a ways by which they would evaluate people. Letters of recommendation, very important, right? So the way it used to work is you would get three or four letters of recommendation. You would use people from your home institution, but you would also use people from your away rotations. Now, and I think it still is this way, you can get as many letters of recommendation as you want, and you can tailor which letters, which LORs that you send to which program. So if you are interested in going to North Carolina, then you're probably going to use one of my LORs because I spent time down there. Whereas if you're going to go to New York, then you have to plan it a little bit differently. So there is some strategy in how you send out your LORs, assuming they're all good, right? But if you, I mean, you wouldn't 
pro- hopefully you wouldn't ask somebody to write you a letter of recommendation who you didn't really hit it off with. Hopefully. Right. But you want to make sure that these people who you're going to, are going to write you a letter of recommendation are going to write you a strong one. And it's so funny. Like when I get students who ask me about writing a letter of recommendation, they actually use that adjective. They say, will you write me a strong letter of recommendation? And I think to myself, what what else how else would I do it? Right. But they're so they're so intent on that mm-hmm. because of I guess that I guess the thought is if I don't write them a strong letter of recommendation, then why are they wasting their time? Mm-hmm. So you have to, you know, you have to kind of take a leap of faith that that, that it's gonna happen. But in the end, if it works the way it should work, you can actually, like I said, tailor your letters of recommendation to the program. And you tailor it based on the alumni of the... That, that's what I would do. Okay. I mean, if you happen to have a letter of recommendation from Pat Walsh, who is considered one of the godfathers of urology, and he's at Hopkins, and he's in his 80s, and he can write you a two- or three-page letter, then you send that to everyone, because mm. everyone knows who Pat Walsh is. Another thing that I tell students, because they're always like, well, you know, I really hit it off with an OBGYN, or I really hit it off with a general surgeon. Unless that general surgeon is DeBakey, we don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. So we have a really great chair of surgery at Jefferson named Charlie Yeo, right? Charlie Yeo is like a pancreatic surgeon, you know, one of the best in the country, one of the best in the world, right? Depending on who you talk to. If you got a letter from Charlie Yeo and you sent it to Northwestern Urology, they'd be like, who the is this, right? So, so don't waste your time on letters of recommendation from other subspecialties. Unless you like did a year of research with that person or unless like there's some extenuating circumstance where that person can write something in a letter that will tell someone something about you that no one else knows doesn't usually happen that way. So were there you mentioned step 2 might be becoming the new metric or something that's looked at. Mm-hmm. You said briefly that there are other things that some other programs are looking at. Well, like I said, there's letters of recommendation, we're looking at scores anymore, mm-hmm. how you do in your preclinical years, we're Got looking at preclinical years. We're looking at, you know, at the top at the um, clerkships that you honor it, uh, that you have honors in. Got it. Um, there are papers out there that actually say that the best urology resident honored in surgery, mm. right? So some, of course, the paper came out of pen, right? Yeah. So, so they, they, so they look at that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you have to kind of consider the source, I see. but that being said, I mean, you certainly don't hurt yourself if you have honors in all of your clerkships. Yeah. Right. So you certainly don't hurt yourself if you're AOA. You certainly don't hurt yourself if you're junior AOA. But not everyone's AOA or junior AOA. And a lot of the schools, a lot of medical schools have different criteria by which they elect AOA. If you're not AOA, don't get scared away. I see. And if you are AOA, don't get full of yourself. Yeah. Right? Because we had a junior AOA, I think one of the first years that I got here who didn't match. Mm. And I was thinking to myself, what did you say in your interviews that you did not match? Or what was on your letters of recommendation that you did not match? It's just crazy to me. So, you know, whatever your mo- mom and dad taught you how to act around people, that's important too. Mm-hmm. So, so the AOA or the board scores or the letters of recommendation, they're going to get you an interview. If you go on that interview and you have your fingers in your nose, it's not going to work for you. And virtually, 
it's even more of a disadvantage, mm-hmm. right? Because it's so difficult to interview somebody over a computer screen. It's easy for the students because they don't have to travel. They don't have to mm-hmm. spend that money. They don't have the, you know, they're not driving 12 hours overnight to get from Ohio to Louisiana mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to, you know, they get in unshaven and everything. Iron their but, suits, all these right. things. Yeah, so, but that being said, virtually there's a lot, there's a lot of nuance that you really don't pick up on. Oh, pay attention to what's behind you. Okay. When you set up your virtual interview, because yeah. all, all urology interviews, I think, is it the AAMC? So I guess all interviews are virtual this year. Mm-hmm. Make pay attention to what's behind you, right? Don't have like a a particular, you know, whatever or like some type of sign that's promoting one political party over mm-hmm. another because mm-hmm. you are going to find somebody who's going to be in the other political party who's going to be like, what are they doing? Look at the books behind you, right? Look at the pictures behind you, because we do, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, I know that, and I I think that there are certain students who like. And they should do this. You, they craft what's behind them mm-hmm. because they, you know, they realize. And I actually use it as talking points. You know, tell me about that picture. Yeah. Right. So you better be ready to. No, I think it's a good strategy. Yeah. Crafting what's behind you. Yeah. I guess unless some students do, they do the blurring of the background, the automatic they, blurring. They do, but mm-hmm. I don't like that. You don't like it. No. So don't blur your background. Don't blur your background. Don't blur your not, background. Not unless you're at least going to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Have you seen so? Other mistakes, because this is extremely helpful. Other mistakes you see on interviews, especially virtual interviews, or th- or not necessarily maybe even mistakes, but things that you've seen that are pretty good, like the backgrounds that people plan their background. That's pretty good, but having a political party, not so good. Right, or something like that. Yeah. Know the programs that you're interviewing at. Mm-hmm. Gee, Doctor Lawless, you did research on X and Y. Tell me about it, mm-hmm. right? So know the people that you're interviewing with if you want to have something impressive, mm-hmm. right? So because I am I have my list of questions that I'm going to ask you. But I'm going to ask you if you want to ask me any questions. And if you say something like, nope, I'm like, why am I interviewing you? What do you want to know about this program? <laughs> now, sometimes if it's like the 10th interview, they're like, you, you can say something like, I've already asked all my questions. That I get because, like, we just want to both get out of there. Mm-hmm. But if if it's at the beginning of the session, you have questions and you make them cogent, relative questions that you want to ask these people. And if you know these people who, who are interviewing you, well, that's another bonus, mm-hmm. right? See what research they did, you know, or know somebody who knows them. Oh, yeah, you know, Dr. So-and-so asked me to say hi to you. Right. Apparently he knew you from residency. He knew you from the society meetings or what have you. That all helps. And then send a thank you letter. Always send a thank you letter. Email thank you letter? You can email it. I mean, some people used to do handwritten. I mean, that was very classy, but I mean, that's not practical. Mm -hmm. If you send a thank you letter, say, hey, I was the guy who likes fly fishing. Right. Mm, I see. Say, you know, or I was the guy who asked you to pay attention to, you know, or who so-and-so asked me to say hello to, mm-hmm. to you. Um, so that that helps, that little personal touch. Because that means that it made an impact, mm-hmm. right? So um, we, dis- we dissuade second visits. Okay. So don't think that you have to make a second visit or a first visit anymore because there's no, sec- there's no first mm-hmm. visit, which is usually the interview. Mm-hmm. But we dissuade visits. Mm. Period, right? Because not everyone can do that. Mm-hmm. So visits 
have no impact whatsoever on. I don't yeah. think so. I yeah. mean, granted, if it's if you're really interested in Penn or you're interested mm-hmm. in Temple and you're at Jefferson, okay, you can go across the mm-hmm. city, but don't fly to Washington, mm-hmm. right? To to figure that out because that's not going to make that much of a difference, honestly. And then do you just logistically wise, do you message someone there and say I'm interested in seeing, or is yeah, that, you could yeah. say I'm interested in seeing it, right? Mm-hmm. So and sometimes they'll flat out and say no, yeah. But it's not going to hurt to say that. And if they say yes, then by all means. Got it. And we, so I I don't delete. It's not an automatic delete when I get a thank you letter. Mm -hmm. I give it to my program coordinator or the medical student director or the medical student coordinator. And I say, print it out, put it in their folder. Mm. Because when we sit down and go over the applications to make our rank list, we will say, did that person send a thank you letter? Always send a thank you letter, right? So does it have to be to every single person you interviewed with? Not necessarily. Always send a thank you letter. Send it to the program director, send it to the associate program director, send it to the program coordinator, right? So always send one. It's really important. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. So you specialized further after your residency in urology. Why did you choose to do that? Just, it's just what I liked. Just what you liked. Yeah. So, I mean, so robotic surgery, um, when I was a medical student, it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. When I was a junior resident, it didn't exist. Uh, we got our first robot at Duke my chief year, and it was a disaster. Like, we had so many complications because we didn't know what we were doing, right? And there were talks at the time that said, hey, um, you know, this is you know, this is a fad. This isn't going anywhere. You're just hurting people. It costs a lot of money. The instrumentations are gross. You know, they're, they're not, they're not as good as open instruments, you know? So, but when I, so I knew I, my fellowship at Mayo was going to be in laparoscopy because laparoscopy was a thing for urology at Mm -hmm. the time. They called me six months ahead of time and they said, Hey, Costas, you know, we bought this robot. And while you're here, we're just going to see how it layers out. You know, what was I going to say? I was like, sure. And those of us who knew saw the potential of it. So when I applied for jobs, I was like, is there a robot there? And if there's not a robot there, I want you to buy a robot for me to work. So the robot arrived at Jefferson almost at the same time that I did. Did they buy it because of you? Uh I think I'd love to say they did, yeah. but apparently it was already kind of in the background. Mm-hmm. But now we had somebody who was ready to use it. And one of the first specialties to use it was urology. And the operation was robotic prostatectomy because laparoscopically, that was a hard operation because you're operating all the way down in the pelvis. And with robotic, with laparoscopic surgery, you can go up and down, left and right, and you can pronate and supinate, and that's it, and in and out, right? What the robot does is it makes your hand this big, and you have a wrist. So all of a sudden, when you're working down in the pelvis, you can actually go like this with hands that are this, with instruments that are this big. So it essentially makes your hands this big. You get more degrees of motion kind of? Oh, yeah. So they they claim that it was seven degrees of motion versus, you know, four or five or whatever we were used to with laparoscopy. It made that operation doable. Completely leveled the playing field. 
And then we were like, I wonder what else we can use it for. So we did it for kidney surgery and we use it for bladder surgery. We use it for ureteral surgery. I mean, we have, and now I'm at the point that if I can get ports in, almost every operation I do is going to be robotic. Wow. That's how quickly it changed things. 90, 95% of my practice is robotic at this wow. point. Most of it is cancer. I do a lot of reconstructive stuff too. But that's how quickly it changed. Now, there was one company that was making the robot at the time. That company was Intuitive. Okay. And depending on what you think of the company, you can, you know, you're going to be very polarized because it was a very polarizing company. Okay. However, they had a good product, right? So, and the robot lasted. And now we have, what, like six robots on Jefferson's campus. Throughout the enterprise, there's over 20. And I can't tell you how many surgeons are using them. The subspecialties and specialties that are using them are gynecology, GYN oncology, bariatric surgery, general surgery, cardiac surgery, thoracic surgery, obviously urology, with all the subspecialties of urology. You know, there's urologic oncology as well as reconstructive urology as well as female urology. I probably left, oh, ENT. Colorectal surgery? Colorectal, absolutely. ENT actually does base of neck surgery wow. or skull base surgery with a robot. Wow. And it's... Ports? The- well, they don't use ports. Oh. They hook it up to like a gantry, which is on the actual, um, connected to the bed. And they don't have to split open the jaw to do these surgeries. I mean, the amount of morbidity that they're preserved, that they're saving the patient, it's incredible. And is the, sorry, I don't really know much about this. Is the evidence showing in support of the robot? It is. And big, mainly because outcomes or mainly time, all things. Well, so with cert, with, um, so with oncology, the outcomes that you look at, number one is survival, mm-hmm. you know, margin status. So, you know, things that are tangible. Right. But then there's functional outcomes and there's pain and there's with, you know, depending on the actual type of surgery that you do, there's little particular outcomes that you look at. Like with, you know, with prostatectomy, you look at incontinence and impotence and things like that. So what we showed was equivalence when you're looking at survival and cancer control. However, most of us believe that there's superiority when you're looking at functional outcomes. The only drawback, which is still a drawback, is cost because it costs more money to do these operations. Now, when you look at cost in relation to how long is the patient in the hospital, how much pain medication do they use, how long does it take them to get back to society working? That usually flattens out or he actually tips the other way, uh, which is really interesting. But it's less trauma to the body, right? So, um, so as a result, patients bounce back more quickly. Mm. I send patients home same day. Wow. It's crazy. When I was a resident, we did open radical prostatectomies. We would send patients home on day two, and that was like a really good outcome. Day one, you never heard of it. I'll operate in the patient... In the, I'll operate on a patient in the morning and send them home later on that afternoon. I've operated on patients in the afternoon and sent them home later on that night. 
And this isn't like I'm clipping their toenails. Yeah. I'm oh. doing intra-abdominal surgery or pelvic surgery. So that's the difference. It's amazing. So speaking of your daily life, as, as in lifestyle, wellness, these kind of things, going back to that, mm -hmm. can you take me through, because uh, I know surgeons and different people have different days during the week. So if some days you might be in the clinic, mm -hmm. right? And some days you might be in the hospital doing procedures. Mm -hmm. uh, is there another day kind of thing? Is there like, an, uh, for example, an academic day or? So you're supposed to be given uh, administrative time or academic time, Got it. right? So that's Im more important when you're in an academic center. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, clinic days are, you know, you're in clinic all day. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to, I'd love to operate every day of the week, yeah. right? But I, but you have to see patients mm -hmm. to, you know, tell them that they need surgery and then, you know, see them after surgery and tell them what their pathology is and then follow them afterward. Um, but, uh, so you have, to, the bottom line is you have to have clinic as well. Um, so, and it depends on the day of the week. Some days I'm in clinic, some days I'm in the operating room, some days I'm actually off-site mm. um, because of my responsibility with the Einstein residency. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then you try to mix that in with your daily life. Mm -hmm. I have two little girls. You know, one's 11 when they're not little anymore. One's 11, one's 14. And, nice. you know, they have their lives too. Uh -huh. So um, that's really important to me. You know, and so I, I, I want to be there for them. Yeah. Right. So watching them, you know, have their games and... Some mornings I drive them to school, and you know that's all very important. So, an average. So, would you say it's two days in the clinic a week, three days in the clinic? How is this average? So, I'm, up? I'm fifty fifty. Fifty fifty. Right, but that's not everyone. Got it. Um, some people. It it depends on how many cases you can generate in a typical clinic day. Okay. That's roughly what your ratio is going to be. Okay. So what I'm telling you is I can fill two OR days for every two days I'm in clinic. So I'm 50-50. I see. If you see a high volume of surgical cases, then you could maybe have one clinic day and three or four OR days. Mm -hmm. it, it just depends. Whereas if you see a lot of general urology that's non-operative, it can be a four-to-one you know, clinic to mm -hmm. OR ratio. So mo most of us are either 50-50 or a little bit less. But, yeah, there's some high-volume surgeons who they're sent, that, that's all they'll see is operative cases, and that's really important to them. What's an average OR day like? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to say average, So it right? depends on which, I mean, there's, there's majors and there's minors. Majors okay. are like big robotic cases. Mm -hmm. Minors are like endoscopic cases. And urology has a full breadth of, of surgeries that you can do. But... I'll personally do about two majors a day. So one in the morning, one in the evening. Um, and, you know, I'm in the OR. During that time, I have residents, I have fellows, I have students. The nice thing about robotic surgery is like laparoscopic surgery, everything's on a monitor, right? So they can watch what we're doing. Um, so they'll sometimes do very small choice parts of the operation. Um, and they're there to learn. Uh, so, but... You know, my operations, like cut time, maybe two hours. Patients are in the operating room four hours at a time. So the, an eight-hour day is is that day. So I'll mm -hmm. start at 7.30 and I'll end at maybe 4.30. Mm. Um, you have like a maybe an hour or two in the middle for lunch. So and you can do whatever you want during that lunchtime, <laughs> right? So some, some of us go to the gym. Wow. Right. Some of us, you know, because that's important yeah. to us. Yeah. Um, some of us, like personally, I don't like to eat a big lunch. Because mm -hmm. I'll get really tired in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. 
So I'll eat something very quick, very small, stay hydrated, and get ready for the afternoon. Some of the cases go all day. It just depends on what you're doing. So some of the cases are going to be five to seven hours. Wow. Um, you know, some of the, some surgeons out there will do cases that are 12 hours. Oh my God. What's a 12-hour what's a urological I mean, it's a, Well, urologic, it's, it's usually something very complex mm-hmm. um, where you have to involve other, other subspecialties, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes we'll do cases that involve organs that we don't necessarily operate on, whether it's the liver, whether it's the vena cava. Sometimes we'll actually have to have other surgeons in there with us. Um, so, but, you know, we plan that all out ahead of time. Occasionally it gets so bad so quickly that you have to call them in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't always know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. What I was told when I was going through training is you want your life to be boring. You want to do the same thing every day over and over again with no deviation. That would be wonderful, but it just doesn't always work that way. So you have to be ready for every curveball that gets thrown your way whether it's, you know, patient anatomy or the disease or, you know, something that's going on with the system. Because the robot is a computer. You know, computers break. With the screen. Right. In my small experience in the OR, I always remember this, some, this screen wouldn't be working. This one is working. We have to move the screen to right. the other side yeah, of the yeah. room. No, I mean, it's, it, that's all a consideration when you're in there. And you have to be ready for every curveball that gets mm-hmm. thrown your way. So if I gave you $100 million today, and I gave you the option of A, continuing your practice full-time, B, working part-time, C, quitting completely and entering the retired world, living on a beach or something like that, or D, switching careers to do something else. Which option do you think you would pick? So I win the lottery, essentially. Yeah. Because I, I play that game yeah. every time I play the lottery, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I, there's I no ask taxes my... on this money. Fine. You just get $100 million, it's in the account, IRS I, I, is in I, some other land. I, I ask myself... A lot, actually. Mm-hmm. I would still work. I'd still do urology. I wouldn't tell a soul that I had that money, mm-hmm. right? Because, like, you're worried about litigation and everything mm-hmm. else. But I would pack that money away. I would take nice vacations when I needed to. Maybe I'd have a vacation house. Mm-hmm. And I would still work. You'd still work I full just, time. Absolutely. I, I just enjoy it. So um, my outlets, I like to run. Um, I do races every once in a while. You know, like... I've done one marathon, but I do, I did a, you know, I just did the half marathon recently. Nice. I've run three half marathons this year. Nice. Um, I've done triathlons, um, usually the sprints, the small ones, but. Triathlons are, that's, that's no, that's no small thing. But that's what I, that's what I enjoy. So that's kind of my outlet. Mm -hmm. Um, I read, uh, you know, I try to read something that's not, that's not medical related, although obviously you have to do that as well. Um, I'm very involved academically. Um, So I'm involved in our societies. Uh, I go to the meetings. I present at the meetings or I support students and residents. Obviously, I enjoy education because that's what I do. So I'm the director of medical student education. I'm the program, the urology program director for a residency, and I'm also the fellowship director. So every stage of training, I'm involved intimately in it. Um, is there a reason you're so interested in education? Did you have a good experience going through training, or is it just you like students? Or I think that's where I make my best impact, okay. or my, my biggest impact, mm-hmm. right? And like, you know, that's you, you migrate toward your talents. Like, if I ever like the best 
cancer surgeon out there, that's probably all I would do. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoy working with trainees. That's all I've done. And Jefferson has a really great track record. So of the 17 years that I've been involved at Jefferson with medical students in urology, three of those years we've matriculated the most students into urology of any program in the country. Wow. And there's two other years we were where we were number two. Who beat us? Uh, Northwestern has a very good I program, see. right? So I know you got to watch this Northwestern. So, but anyway, I mean the point is um, there's a reason for that. Now Jefferson has a massive medical school class. That's one of the reasons for that. But you know, I mean we we do things right. Students come onto service, and they see what we do, and we engage them, and we pay attention to them, and they love it. And they do what I did. They compare every rotation to that, and they want to go into it. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of, you know, that's where my talent lies. Mm. So, um, and you know, I've been able to make that a good part of my career. That's fantastic. Would you say, if I was to ask you a question, what do you think is the best thing about urology? Oh, I mean, it's the people. The people. Yeah, it's the people and, and the... I mean, in my mind, it's the case mix, right? So again, that point that I made to you at the very beginning where you do not have to go into the operating room at all, I think that means something because eventually, eventually, my life will transition and I won't be going into the operating room anymore, but I'll still want to work. So I'll teach or I'll do simulation, right? Mm -hmm. Or something like that. But I won't necessarily be doing the big the big cases like I'm doing now for whatever reason. But I still want to be involved, right? And sometimes the best instructors that are out there are these surgeons who have been doing it all of their lives. And they'll come in and they'll have, you know, a font of knowledge like you'll never imagine. But they'll have story after story. They, they have seen all the trainees come through. They know what motivates people. And it's just really nice having them around. Actually, one of the reasons why I went into urology at Jefferson was we had a surgeon here. His name was Lynn Frank. Lynn was retired. And he would sit us down in the cafeteria with handwritten notes on BPH and kidney stones. And he would sit there with you and he would talk to you through all of those topics buy you coffee, and you just sat there. And it was like low-key. He would draw. He, You know, it wasn't PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. I would still, even Lynn is still around. Even now I would say, Lynn, could you put this on PowerPoint? He'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he would draw it out with a, with a pen and paper and all of his diagrams. So he was retired. Why was he, in, was he just there that's, to teach you guys? That's what he wanted to do. So he'd just come in for lunchtime. Or whenever. Well, he would be there pretty much all day. All day. Yeah. And, and and he told our chairman, I don't want money. I just want to be able to teach. He had made wow. his he had made his money. The heyday of medicine is beyond us, unfortunately. <laughs> and a lot of us got duped because we thought we were gonna kill it like the people be- the generation before us did. And it doesn't work like it doesn't work like, mm-hmm. work like that anymore, but it worked for Lynn. Mm-hmm. And Lynn was able to retire at sixty or sixty-five. And his wife had also been a physician who also retired at 60 or 65. She's since passed away. Her name was Barbara because she was wonderful. But she was a gastroenterologist mm-hmm. who worked at Hahnemann. Wow. And she did the same thing there, right? So they 
they saw their patients, they treated all their conditions, and they just decided they wanted to teach. And that's a reason why I went into what I went into was because somebody took the time to pay attention to me and teach me about that specialty. And look, we're all busy, right? I mean, like, and all of the bureaucracy that you mentioned, why people are getting burned out, that's all of us. But, you know, in the end, it's that education system is still there. And uh, another thing I tell my residents, um, because residents are always wanting to go into subspecialties. And I tell the students this too. A lot of what you go into is going to depend on whatever relationships you have over time. So if you have, if you catch somebody on a day where like their dog crapped in their shoe, guess what? They're going to be mad and they're going to be an asshole, sorry. And they're going to not pay attention to you or they're going to snip at you. And you're going to say, that subspecialty is not for me. Whereas if they're there and they're ready and they're prepared and they have a great case and you and they show it to you and they get you excited, guess what? You're going to want to do that specialty. Uh, the impression that you make on students is lasting. And one little bad episode can turn them off from a subspecialty altogether. Definitely. But, you know, up to that point, like students are... They have a lot of, you know, they're very impressionable at that point. Yeah, so it's important that you that you take that into consideration. And, you know, not every student wants to go into urology, obviously. But, like, I respect the ones who come up to me and say, look, this isn't going to be what I want to do. Mm -hmm. But I really want to learn about this. Okay, let's go. So I, I some of the best students that I remember never went into urology. Mm. So we have the good parts of urology. Now, the counter question is, I know we're, those were other things talk, interspersed throughout that. Yeah. The counter question is, what is the worst part of urology or being a urologist? Let me think about that one. Sure. If you can't think of one, that's, good. that's a good answer, too. Well, no, I mean, certainly I'm trying to think of things that are specific to my specialty mm -hmm. as opposed to, in general, being a physician. Yeah. Uh, because we've lost control as time has gone on of our specialties. Like private practice, which was a very viable and if not preferable option for your for, for your career when you were coming out at my age, it's not so popular anymore mm -hmm. because it doesn't really exist anymore. You have a lot of hospital-based employees. You know, that's essentially what I am as an academician. I'm a hospital-based employee. Mm -hmm. I just happen to be at an academic center. Um, like I said, three residents a year in a program. So you extrapolate that out, 140-ish programs. So 400 people a year come out, right? So we all know each other. That can be great or that can not necessarily be great because it's such a small community. We don't have a lot of influence on what gets what happens in, when decisions are made because we're such a small piece of the pie. Whereas with medicine, I mean, like, you think about how many medicine residents there are every year, right? How many people are in internal medicine, not to mention all the subspecialties out there. So urology is definitely a, um, we don't really have as much influence as we could. So when we get to the hospital level, and I'm like, I think we need another robot, 
you know, they they're like, okay, you need to be able to justify us spending two point however million dollars on a robot and the, you know, and the instrumentation. Not to mention, you know, the drape, the drapes, everything else, and you justify it based on six people who want to use it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I had, a, you know, 50 par- partners behind me, getting that technology would be a lot easier. So that's certainly one of the drawbacks of it. It's such a small community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, from a negotiating standpoint, there's not a lot there, unfortunately. So we can get a little broader now, I think, because you mentioned the physicians before. Do you have any mistakes or things you did wish you did differently going through your career? Because now you're 18 years into being at Jefferson, right? And this doesn't have to be about urology. This could be about going through med school or residency or any just. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be specific to something, just a general thought, anything. I put a lot on hold. Yeah. You know, like delayed gratification is like, part of my mantra. Mm-hmm. It's like part of me. I put a lot on hold to get to the point that I'm at. And I'm not going to tell tell you how old I am, but I think I'm way too old to be in the position that I'm in. You know, having my kids later in life. Um, you know, my parents are, my parents, are, thank God, are still alive, but they're much older. It, I haven't had a chance to enjoy them like I would like to enjoy. And you know, I can't tell you how many times I say to myself, I wish I were 10 years younger. But going through medical school and residency and fellowship, I mean, that's years, right? So it's difficult for us in that respect. And when I say us, it's a global us because somebody who goes into medical oncology, they may do a three-year internal medicine residency, but they're going to do a four-year fellowship, right? Cardiology the same way. Gastroenterology the same way. Cardiothoracic surgery, sometimes the same way, depending on what program you go to. So delayed gratification is a large part of what we do. Um, And sometimes you miss that time. And, you know, when when your buddies are, you know, flying to Bora Bora in their late 20s, you're in a hospital getting yelled at. Hopefully not. But, you know, I mean, that's that was one thing that I realized is that I was putting so much on hold to pursue the career that I wanted to pursue. And I'm thrilled that I am, but I'm in my prime now. You know, you compare that to LeBron James. He was in his prime 20 years ago, and he's 10 years younger than me, or even more so younger than me, right? So... It's just different. Um, if you if you could go back to your 18-year-old self and give oh. him, this is one of those cliche questions, right? But if you could go back to your 18-year-old self and give him some advice, what oh, would you say? I would probably tell him to focus more on relationships. Yeah. Yeah. You're so afraid to. And maybe that was the generation that I grew up in. I, I, see, I, I see a lot more of my residents getting married. Mm-hmm. Some of them are having kids. And, you know, when I was a resident, it was verboten to have kids. Really? Because they were like, you're an idiot because you're not going to have time to take care of anybody. And you better have a spouse that gets it because otherwise, you know, you're going to be out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, find somebody who appreciates what you do, whether that person's in medicine or that person's not in medicine. And consider family planning a little bit early. Um, Even though... 
we're living older. You know, the average age has gone up for male and female. The reproductive age hasn't really changed as much. I still think that it's really ideal to have a child when you're in your probably your late 20s, early 30s. I wasn't in my late 20s, early 30s, right? And like, I've, I've, so yes, I'm, I have more money. I'm able to provide more. I get all that. But there's, you, you can't buy more time, you know? And like, I look at my kid's age and I look at my age and I think to myself, uh, you know, I mean, if I were just a little bit younger. So yeah, that's, I, I don't know how to really change that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't. Really, I take care of myself, and mm-hmm. hopefully, nothing tragic happens over time. And maybe I live lo- live longer, but just cherish the time you have. Right? right? Yeah. I mean, it's really important. Yeah. In regards to colleagues or maybe other physicians that you see, do you see common mistakes for physicians going through their career, or is is it is it this kind of thing, or is it a different thing? So, not everybody wants. So, it's a, again, a broad question. Not everybody wants to go into the specialty they go into. I see. Right. So, and I've seen that happen across the board in neurology and in other subspecialties. So, and this doesn't, this is a minority of the people, of, of the students or residents. But if this isn't jiving for you, do not be afraid to change. Because, and I've known probably about 10 people who I've been close to who have changed over the years. And every single one of them is happier for it. So don't think that there's only one career path out there that's going to make you happy. And if you want to get out of medicine, then do it. It's unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we put so much time into it to think that about going another way is difficult. But, you know, do what you need to to make yourself happy. Um, cause there's only one ride, right? Yeah. And are there physicians, um, that you look at the other way that you admire and are there certain characteristics or yeah. choices that they've made in their life that you say, you know what, this is the physician I aspire to be, or this well, is the person. I and aspire I see, to be. and I see that in people even younger than me. Okay. Right. So people who are just, they're just laser beam focused and they're doing everything right. So they have that perfect work-life balance, but they're really respected in what they do. And they're very involved in, in my situation, education. Um, people who lead by example. So I always want to work somebody. I always want to work for somebody who leads by example, right? Not leads by memo. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those, that's what I look for. I mean, you can't choose your boss, unfortunately, but in some respects you can. But those people who inspire you, those are the people who I want to work with, whether they're younger or older. Because if you're only, as, you're only going to be as good as the people around you, right? Um, that's not necessarily true. I guess that if you had like a really strong internal drive, mm-hmm. but... I, I love to be around people who are better than me because it makes me want to be better, right? And I'm still that way at this part of my career, right? I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I don't want to be the best surgeon in the, in the hospital. I want to be around people who push me to be better. So that's what I look for. Those are the physicians that I admire the most. That's fantastic. 
We're coming near the end here. Do you have any closing words for students that might be interested in urology or thinking about urology? Say I have to decide my specialty in the next two weeks. What would you say I should think about if I'm thinking about urology? Spend time with a urologist. Yeah. Go to clinic. Before you go to the operating room, go to clinic. Because okay. you're going to go to the operating room and you're going to see stars. Like, it's going to dazzle you because you've never seen anything like it before. Go to clinic and see what it's about. Hang around with that person, have coffee with them, see what it's about. Um, do your homework. Don't decide that after you do one rotation, don't decide that that's the rotation that's going to be the rest of your life. Go, go into your clerkships, especially with an open mind. Um, I, I get approached by first years more than I ever used to. Really? That are interested in your wow, and like I, I used to say, who in your family is a urologist? Because no one really knows what a urologist does, mm -hmm. but that's not the case anymore. They just get it. I can't tell you how many first years come up to me and say, "Hey, I want to do urology." Now, granted, it's been very forward thinking of the uh, SKMC curriculum uh, and the administration, but urology actually has a week in phase two, in phase one. So there is a week dedicated to urology, most, which is preclinical years. Mm -hmm. Urology is a clinical subspecialty, right? So the fact that they have us in preclinical years is pretty amazing. So student, students are getting more urology at Jefferson than most programs in the country. Um, and I, I helped design that. We have seven of my partners who give lectures to second-year medical students. Wow. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's, it is pretty cool. Yeah. And even more of a kudos to you. I, I give a section at the end or for everyone who comes here to plug their... We'll talk about whatever they want because there's an audience of a good amount of people that will listen to this. And your, your plugs were, I just want to say, were SKMC students and the Jefferson Urology Einstein program and Philadelphia Sports. Those are probably the best plugs I've seen so far. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's not, you know, your Twitter or your website or it's 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 right. it's just it speaks to kind of what you've been saying the whole time. Especially how important this is. Especially Philadelphia sports. Yes. Right. Yeah. So what what a great time. And like I said, I don't know when this is gonna air, yeah. <laughs> but this is a great time to be a Philadelphia sports fan. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god, it's great. It'll, so, so this will go live probably in March of twenty twenty three, February or March of twenty twenty three. After match day. Mm -hmm. Um uh, you mentioned the Einstein residence, yeah. but yeah. So I mean, they uh, and Duke basketball is there a passion there as oh well? God. Oh yeah. So I could tell more stories. Yeah. So I graduated with yeah. I graduated with Christian Leitner. Okay. Wow. So it was Lawless Leitner in our yearbook. Yeah. Like or Leitner Lawless in our yearbook, literally. So I saw four Final Fours, three final games, two national championships in my four years undergrad at Duke. Another national championship when I was a resident at Duke. It's it's softened over time, but there was a time where like you could not talk to me about any other sport than Duke basketball, <laughs> right? So now Mike Shashevsky has finally stepped down, and you know they have John Shire who's taking over the reins, and it's going to be different. But like I could tell Duke basketball stories until you're just like just leave. Do you want right? to give us one? Anyone? Uh, well, I used to. So <laughs> so this was back when. Before we won national championships, before there was a Shashevskyville, we would just camp out for games. Really? Oh, yeah. So, and like you would just put a camp, you would just put a tent on grass 
And, you know, and it was January because that's when all the important basketball games were. Because the way Duke basketball used to work is November, December, you didn't play any tournaments. You didn't play number one, number two teams. You played like the Elons of the world. I'm sorry, Elon, right? <laughs> but, you know, schools that didn't, maybe Division two, Division three schools that didn't focus on basketball. Mm-hmm. And then you got into January and you were playing your ACC games. And at that time, there were only eight teams in the ACC. And you played each of those teams twice. And those were some of the loudest games I've ever been in. Like, you couldn't hear yourself think. Bobby Hurley and Christian Leitner and Thomas Hill, Grant Hill. I mean, I I can't even tell you. How many nights do you camp? So, (laughs) they didn't have tickets for the students. Mm -hmm. Good. And you would camp out to get in, right? And the soon the earlier you camped out, the earlier you got in. So you got the best seats. Mm. And the students, if you've watched a Duke game, they sit around the floor, right? So you wanted to be at the 50-yard line, low down, right? Not too low down, but low down, because those were the best seats. Those people had camped out the longest. Now, what do we mean by camp out? Well, there are 10 people per tent. And at any time... Hope these are big tents. One person had to be in the tent. And they did random checks. Mm. And if you weren't there for your random check, they would put you at the end of the line. So we came up with these very elaborate, intricate schedules because you had you actually had to go to class and you had to study and you had tests and you had lab. And you, but so days at a time, we're talking about these weeks, games. weeks at a time for the Carolina game started a month ahead of time. Oh my god! Right. Because, like, it was Carolina. So we would camp out, and it would rain, and it sucked, right? But, like, we were just waiting to go in, into the game. It's like residency on call. It's, right. it's, it's yes. like a rotation schedule is being developed. Here. Oh, well, but, like, and there weren't cell phones back then. Mm. So you couldn't just text someone and say, hey, tent check. It had to get back to that person. So we would kind of keep an eye on the tents and then we would see so-and-so tent, nobody's in there, tent check's going around right now, we got to get word to them. So it was mayhem. And then you do not want to be that person who is responsible for being in your tent and you weren't there. And your nine best buddies went to the end of the line. Do you know the word decimate? Is that destroy everything? No, decimate means like what used to happen was uh, they would take the Roman army would take prisoners, and they would put them in groups of ten, and they would choose one that they would beat to death. Right? That's where the word decimate <laughs> comes from. Well, Duke basketball clearly knew of that concept with their tent system. Oh my god, <laughs> that that's fantastic! And I think there's no better place to end, Doctor Ellis. <laughs> thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This has been really really helpful. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Take care.